All right, everybody, this is Ben and Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. My best route to success, I think, is to focus on the stuff that really represents who I am and what I think is important. I think it's more about what's happening nationally. And that has, I think the focus there crowds a lot of that local concern out. And it's not as much, even at the national level, about what my preferred candidate or my preferred party has to say. It's much more a negative thing about what's wrong with the other side. But getting people together is the answer to all of that, I think. All right, everyone. Uh, We are excited to present another episode of the Oregon Bridge podcast. Today, we have a special guest joining us, a statewide elected official in Oregon, State Treasurer Tobias Reed. Treasurer Reed has an extensive history in Oregon politics. He served in the State House for several years before he was elected State Treasurer after then-Treasurer Ted Wheeler was termed out. He also spent some time in Washington, D.C., working at the U.S. Department of Treasury. So he's got uh, multiple perspectives that he brings to the table. He's obviously being talked about in the media and in political circles as a potential candidate for governor after Governor Kate Brown is termed out. And he sort of occupies the space as a moderate or as a, you know, a someone who's focused on governance and competency um, and not someone who speaks a lot to the sort of, I guess, the the thesis of this podcast about the nationalization of politics. Um, Treasury is not someone who is sort of chasing the latest progressive issues and trying to appeal, um, at least usually, to the base. So I'm curious, Alex, what was your take on Treasurer Reed's interview? Yeah, it was a really interesting episode. Uh, a couple of my favorite parts of it. One is I asked him, as you were saying, you know, where is the red meat? Or where is the controversy? And he basically just said, yeah, I've tried to do that before and I wasn't very good at it. So I just thought I should be authentic again. And I actually love that because one, I think it's incredible a politician would admit something like that. And two, I mean, that yeah, I think most people, that is what they're looking for. Uh, I mean, that was one of the things that people liked. I'm not saying that Treasurer Reed and Donald Trump are the same person, but people are like, well, President Trump would say these things and we're like, yeah, but that's just who he is. And that's why I like it. And I do think that even again, because he's not a bomb thrower, if he doesn't think he can do that authentically, like, why would he do it? I think voters are going to reward him and they've clearly have rewarded him for just being a normal person, which I know we've talked about on this podcast quite a bit. The second thing is that he was very willing to attack Democrats, uh, which was surprising because of course, I think that basically from a GOP perspective, unless we have a blowout year in 2022 where we have some really good candidate uh, that raises a lot of money, has really high name ID, and is really sharp. I don't see anyone on the GOP field that could beat Tobias Reed if he did make it through the, the primary on the Democratic side. But if I was him, I would think my biggest concern is making it through that primary because, you know, I mean, you'll see it through the podcast, and I won't call them boring things, but he likes to talk about wonky policy stuff. Like at you know, I even made a joke, like at no point is he like, Alex, I'm coming to take your guns. Like I'm coming <laughs> to take your church or anything like that. And I don't really see how Republicans could do a good job of framing him as someone like that because just his authentic personality isn't like that. So I think though he is going to struggle in the primary and that, you know, I, I, it is kind of surprising that he doesn't sort of have some of those progressive issues that he's focused on. But I, you know, it was, it was great to be able to meet someone who I thought was very authentic through, throughout basically the whole episode and really gave us some interesting insights then. Yeah, I know. I agree. Uh, you you use the term attack, but like 
Tobias doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't come across as attacking. He has these yeah, like he does I, I couldn't even see him attacking someone. He's like, he's like, I gave them a mild criticism. Right. <laughs> he wrote an op-ed where where he complimented um state leaders, the governor and the legislature on a few things, but then criticized them on some other things. And I do think, you know, if he does decide to run for governor or, you know, breaking news, uh, you know, this this will come out a little bit after it's breaking, but Oregon just picked up another congressional seat. So Tobias is surely um or potentially yeah. someone who will be spoken about for that seat um, as he's termed out of the state treasury cannot run for re-election to the treasurer um, office but it will be an interesting case study if he does run depending on what the composition of the primary looks like you know he's he is not going to try to be the furthest left candidate it, 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 there's just no way he could do that credibly and he sort of acknowledged that he's going to run on competency and getting the job done and kitchen table issues sort of the basics like I do think the way that he talks about COVID is really interesting. He sounded a lot like Representative Christine Drazen um, in our episode with her, where they were talking yeah, about- Yeah, I was gonna actually say, he sounded like like a Republican, honestly, on a lot of his stuff, right? He's like, we need to focus on women employment, getting people back into the workplace. We need to focus on bailing out small businesses. We need to focus on opening schools. I think his solutions to those issues would be probably, well, maybe not a lot different, but at least somewhat different than maybe what Rep. Christine Drazen was putting forward. but. I think that the main sort of bread and butter issues that he was talking about are relatively the same. And so, yeah, I thought that was kind of kind of surprising too. But yeah, I mean, that just clearly is who he is. And those are the issues that he really wants to focus on and think can move the state forward. So, I mean, I do appreciate that sort of honesty, which I feel like we don't, we really just don't see a lot of out of the political class today. For sure. Well, thank you everyone again for listening. Please give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. That would be really helpful for the pod and for sure would help others discover um, the Oregon Bridge, which we would really appreciate. And we also want to give a plug for our Twitter handle. It's at Oregon Bridge Pod. Um, my colleague, Mr. Titus here, assures me that we are going to become active on Twitter. So we'd love to engage with the conversation with you on, on Twitter. All right, Treasurer Tobias Reed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. So we want to start the state treasurer. Nobody knows what the state treasurer is. Everybody knows what the state treasurer is. The Oregonian called it the de facto CFO of Oregon. I think a lot of people think you have a lot of power over controlling how our money is spent. What's the role of the state treasurer? And is it humbling or powerful or somewhere in between? Somewhere in between is a good place with most questions. You know, when we were in the uh, before times, I would joke when I started a speech in a, in a room that uh, I was afraid that when I was introduced as treasurer, everyone would run for the exits, not because of my boring speech, but because they assumed that the treasurer was the tax collector. Uh, <laughs> right. Not true. Uh, it's also true, or it's also not true, as you said, that um, we, we don't have any any role in the in deciding the state budget. I, the way I typically summarize it is that we we have a role in in keeping public money safe and hopefully growing before it's used for its intended purpose. So we invest the state's portfolio. The largest portion of that is the public employee retirement fund or the pension fund, but it also includes the, the short-term fund, which is really kind of the money market for state agencies and for a lot of uh, local governments who choose to do that with us. There are a bunch of other funds that we invest as well. So all told, you know, it $110 billion we're responsible for uh, on behalf of, of state agencies and, and beneficiaries and various other people. We're also the, the bank for the state. We issue bonds uh, on behalf of state agencies and refund them. Our, our team just this year alone has, has saved $125 million uh, by refinancing existing debt. That means that there's more money to, to do other things rather than to uh, just pay debt service. 
Uh, we run a, a suite of uh, financial empowerment programs ranging from college savings, that's pretty well known, to a, a disability savings program, to the, the first opt-out retirement savings program for people in the private sector in the country. It just passed a couple of significant milestones as well. I was going to say, uh, is, this, is this Oregon Saves? It is. Yeah. This is one place where the treasurer has made some headlines with policy. Can you, what, what, what were the milestones? Was it $100 million? $100 million and 100,000 funded accounts. Yeah. And smart guys like you and your listeners can, can do that math. It's not enough for people to retire on yet, but it's, uh, it's 100,000 people on the way to financial security. And it's a it's a really it's something we should be proud of. Um, Oregon taking a direct role in trying to to solve a problem. Uh, about half of people in Oregon and and same number across the country who are working don't have a way to save for retirement at work. And you might say, well, they could go to the bank and open up their IRA, and that's technically true, but people don't do it. If they have a way to save at work, about seventy percent of people do that to some degree. Uh, but if they have to go open it on their own, uh, it's about three and a half percent of people who do that. Um, and it's not hard to understand because it's it's intimidating. It's complicated. Retirement seems like it's a long way into the future. But our, our goal here really is to try to fill a, a market gap, create savers um, that's in the interest of the private sector as well. And ultimately, it's in the interest of taxpayers because when people have their own resources and choices, they're going to need less help from the state government as they reach and near retirement. So uh, we're really proud of that. And aside from all the numbers, which I could drown you in, the notion of listening to or watching people talk about being empowered financially is really gratifying. Their, their eyes light up and they start, you know, they start feeling like they can, they can be in control. And that's, that's something I hope everybody can be excited about. That is and, really and so cool. if I'm not mistaken, this is actually the Oregon is the only state in the country that has a program like this, correct? No, we're the first, uh, and we'll always claim oh, the first. Um, okay. But yes, you can. The, the the small states of California and Illinois are following in our steps. <laughs> they are, of course, quickly going to eclipse us uh, in terms of dollars and numbers of accounts. Um, but we have we happen to go first. We were the third to pass legislation and the first to to implement. Uh, and we talk with them all the time, sharing notes and comparing notes and so on. And there's a whole another slate of, of states that are uh, building their programs. Colorado, uh, we went and testified in, on their program, uh, Connecticut, Maryland, a whole bunch of others that are in the process as well. So I, I'm curious of why, why do you think so few states have passed a policy like this? Uh, because it's funny, even I actually know that there is some conservatives who have not advocated for this specific policy, but sort of for things that are similar, right? Like education savings accounts, health savings accounts that are basically funded uh, very small amounts, but partially operated by the government and things like that. Why do you think so few states have this? And uh, this isn't even an attack on Oregon, but out of all states, I think Oregon just seems kind of, you would think like a bigger state, right? Like the Californias, the New Yorks, the Floridas would be sort of leading the way on this issue. But it sounds like we actually are really trailblazing here and we're actually helping other states do this too. So I'm kind of curious of what, like, why do you think that is in terms of what makes us so special with this? Well, it's always a little scary to go first at something that no one else has tried. And, and one of the common questions I'm asked by national press and others is, you know, are you meeting projections? And I joke and say, well, there aren't any projections. We're the first ones. We're, we're in totally uncharted territory here. So I think that's part of the reason that it's, it's kind of scary. And in the, the sense that, that this is going to be a good thing, we hope and succeed for everybody, it's probably good that a relatively smaller state like Oregon goes first, because we can experiment at a smaller scale 
And we can already see that California and Illinois are doing some things a little differently based on what we learned in Oregon. And, you know, we, we go back to other places like Colorado and Connecticut and say, listen, if we got to start over, we would do X, Y, and Z a little differently. Uh, and they can, they can choose to, um, you know, ignore that or not, but, but they at least have the benefit of our experience. So I don't, I don't think, I mean, you, you've, if you haven't already, you should get uh, Senate President Peter Courtney on, on the podcast. He likes to say that uh, Oregon prefers to be first or last at something. <laughs> Sales tax. <laughs> That's part of it, too. Well, I appreciate you letting us start with the, the deeply wonky policy questions, and we may return to them. It's, be- it's, uh, it's a favorite place of mine. But before we go there, we kind of wanted to zoom back out. We were talking before we started recording about your work in the Treasury Department many moons ago for um, Larry Summers. Um, we believe Cheryl Sandberg was your direct supervisor. So some big names that you worked with when you were in D.C. You served in the House before you ran for Treasury. You've kind of touched a bunch of different places of politics and government, national, state. What's your what, What's the trajectory of your career been and did you always have sort of like, I mean, you worked in U.S. Treasury and now you're the Oregon State Treasurer. Was that always the goal or did you kind of um, by happenstance land here? Definitely not. Definitely not always the plan. Um, I, I do want to correct one thing and then I'll tell a, a funny story to set the scene and then fill in some details. Okay. Uh, Cheryl Sandberg was the chief of staff and I did get to interact with her on a regular basis, but I don't want to uh, skip over the guy who was my uh, direct supervisor, the executive secretary of the treasury, Neil Comstock, um, with whom I'd worked in uh, uh, the state of my upbringing, Idaho, uh, long before that. So um, I don't want to give Neil any short shrift. I worked in the in the Oregon House when I was a, a college student and an intern uh, for a, a guy I really consider a, a political mentor, Brian Johnston. Mm. And I had had worked on the Clinton campaign um, when I was a high school student in Idaho, which resulted in the, the first connection through Neil Comstock uh, when I interned at the U.S. Treasury Department when Robert Rubin was secretary. And a funny thing happened when I talked to, to Brian Johnston, then state representative, about this opportunity I was going to have during the, uh, during the summer. He ran down to the Oregon treasurer's office and then got treasurer Jim Hill to find something. I don't remember what it was um, that said, congratulations, Tobias, on your internship. Maybe someday you'll be Oregon treasurer. No kidding. Wow. <laughs> 1995. And I told Jim Hill this. And of course, I can't find it. I don't know if I still have it. It's gone. Uh, which Did Jim Hill believe you? Did he remember this? Uh, I did remember it. He believed me, but I don't think <laughs> what I was clear on was, was a desire to be involved in public service of some sort. And I definitely credit my parents for that. They were, they were really clear, um, in my upbringing about the fact that I was benefiting from people who had, uh, had come before me, who invested in schools and libraries and soccer leagues and that sort of stuff. And then I had to figure out some, some way to be involved in, in paying that, uh, that investment forward. I didn't have an idea that I would be a candidate someday. I, I found that I liked working on policy and working in, in the process. And so I worked for others. And I'm a, I'm a proud Bearcat, a graduate of Willamette University, right across the street, the only school uh, in the country directly across the street from a state That's capital. Uh, obviously, some, some real benefits, uh, proximity, and being able to uh, be involved that way. So that was- Why a- did you- why did you come back or I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to Willamette, then you went to DC. 
a lot of people get stuck in the the DC whirlpool and they build their careers there and they kind of climb the ladder. Um, po political appointees, depending on the administration, or they go work in lobbying. But it's not it's not super common, I would say, that a young person gets a stint in DC, um, particularly you know working um, in the kind of role you were, and then comes back. So what were the the factors in that decision? Two things. Um, I wasn't smart enough to go to Willamette initially. I went to uh, Swarthmore College my freshman year, and that's outside of Philadelphia, and it's a it's a great school, but it was not the right place for me. And it it became really clear to me really quickly that I am a, a Westerner. Um, there's no other way about that. And the other thing was when I got the uh, the call to come work as a full-time person in the in the Clinton administration, I was I was home in Idaho visiting visiting home, and one of my political heroes is, is Cease Andrus, um, who was uh, governor of Idaho uh, four terms and was interior secretary in the Carter administration. And he's sort of the Idaho version of Tom McCall. You know, the, yeah. if there's a, a Mount Rushmore in Idaho, he's he's maybe all four faces. May have Frank Church. <laughs> Frank Church still gets one too. Um, but I went to see him and said, you know, what what advice do you have for me? And he, he gave me great advice when I had, when I was elected to the legislature and that sort of stuff. And uh, and he got, you know, right in my face and I can't, you know, replicate his voice, but he said, go back there and work really hard and then do not get stuck there. Um, get your back home. And, as and you I, listened. Yes, I did. <laughs> um, and it helped, um, to, to go to a, to business school, um, at the university of Washington. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I it, the Swarthmore experience and and Governor Andrus both made it really clear that um, that I'm a I'm a Westerner and a, and a Northwesterner more specifically. So um, it wasn't hard. So I, I'm really I'm really curious, uh, uh, Treasurer. So you went to D.C. You worked in the Clinton administration. You came back to Oregon. You were elected in the early 2000s. Uh, you were just reelected to Treasurer. How have you seen? not only democratic politics change nationally over the past 15, 20 or years or so since you've been involved in it, but also locally in Oregon. Uh, a big topic that we like to talk about on this podcast is what we call political realignment. And part of that realignment that we've seen is that more working class voters are moving over and more rural voters to the Republican party and more suburban voters are in, in upper middle class voters are moving into the democratic party. But I'm just curious from you, because you've worked in, in politics so long, you've been elected official. What does that change look like from your perspective? I think I'm hardly the first person to to make this observation, but it's I think it's a, it's a good question. And, and what I, my mind goes to immediately is how, well, you know, one of the best things about running for the legislature, and all of you know this, is knocking on doors, is, is the direct feedback you get from voters. Um, a chance to hear what they're what they're dealing with and what's what's real and i haven't gotten to do that as much in in recent times for obvious reasons um covid and and uh, being a, a statewide uh candidate but even before covid when i would go out with others to do that there's a lot less of that um that's part of that conversation at the doorstep these days it's more about what's happening uh, nationally. And that has, I think the focus there, it crowds a lot of that, that more local concern out. And it's not as much, again, not an, not an original observation, but it's not as much even at the national level about what my preferred candidate or my preferred party 
has to say, it's much more a negative thing about what's wrong with the other side. Yeah. And that too crowds out the, okay, you know, as, as others have said, I get a strong sense of what you're against. What are you <laughs> for? Um, what would you like to see? What would you, you know, what do you think needs to happen? And the reality is that there's not that much um, that an individual state can do in the short term to separate itself from what's going on in the, in the country, in the world. So I understand how we got to pay attention to the world, but in the long run, it really is about what, um, you know, what we do around education, innovation, and infrastructure that's going to create a, a growing economy. And education, nothing more local than that, right? Especially in Oregon, where we have 197 locally elected school boards. Someone on this podcast knows something about that. And that, there's hardly any room for that, because people are so fired up about what they, what they're seeing on the, on the cable news. I'll tell you one thing that that, the, um, that COVID really did for me, and I, I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't figure out how to do this earlier. I just stopped watching almost 100% uh, cable news. Yep, I'm same way. I, I've uh, it's good. I, I record because I, I seven o'clock with with a sixth grade daughter and a second grade son is just not viable. But record the PBS News Hour, mm-hmm. and the quality of my life has increased appreciably because they're actually. That's actual news there, not just people talking about news. Um, it's not just panels of, of people I might have heard of. It's actual reporters. And it's stories from elsewhere in the world that that, that aren't covered elsewhere. Your, your friend Bakari Sellers might be unhappy to hear you say that, but uh, I agree with you. This podcast. Which, <laughs> there you go. Um, so I get a lot of him twice a week. He's, he's got an interesting interview. Um, but it's true. I, don't, uh, I, I, often don't, I often don't see him on CNN. Yeah. Titus, I think you had a follow up. Yeah, so I know I think that adds a that adds a lot of good limelight. And that actually is a, if you've listened to a few episodes, that is actually the thesis of our podcast that the nationalization of politics has completely uh, overtaken local issues, and that actually partially that uh, and I experienced this all the time when I was working in conservative politics in D.C. And it sounds like you uh, may have experienced it a little bit too from the Democratic side, but people are really interested in what's going on in Oregon. Uh, whether that's the BLM protests or it's Antifa or it's what's going on at the courthouse or what's going on with ICE, uh, a lot of people, no matter if you're conservative or progressive, and if you live in Maryland or if you live in Florida, seem to really care what's happening in Oregon. Yeah. And uh, part of that sort of shift, I, I actually want to ask you about, for example, uh, especially since 2016, is with Mayor Ted Wheeler. So I think that a lot of people, if we sort of transported back to 2016, a lot of people would say there's no question that after Governor Brown, Mayor Wheeler will be the next governor of the state of Oregon. Uh, he's a moderate guy. He's more of a policy-focused person. He's got a good profile. He has financial backing. I think a lot of people would probably agree with that statement. But then I think if you fast forward to today, uh, I, I think a lot of people would think, oh, you're crazy if you think that Ted Wheeler has a good chance of, be- of becoming the next governor of Oregon. And I think a lot of that has to do with the nationalization of politics, right? He's getting hammered from the left because of how he's reacting to some of the things that Antifa is doing. He's getting hammered from the right for how he's responding to situations like at the courthouse and some of his responses on racial justice issues. So I, I'm sort of curious of uh, you as an elected official who especially likes to focus, you know, as you said before, more on the policy side of things. Uh, how do you avoid falling into that trap that I think that the Ted Wheeler sort of uh, maybe he didn't even fall into it, honestly. Maybe he was just forced into it. But how, how do you sort of respond to that and kind of navigate those issues, uh, do you think, as a statewide elected official? 
It's a it's an interesting question, and it's it's hard in some ways to to separate it so, uh, to separate it from from the moment we're in because there's so many specifics and and um, unusual if you not if not unique circumstances to to where we are in this in this moment. But I think I think the thing is to try to stick to the to those universal and, and timeless principles. Um, I read an article uh, a year or so ago um, uh, about. Uh, Robert Kennedy and his and his 82 day uh, campaign for the presidency and the, the title was something like the inclusive populism of Robert Kennedy. The question that the article is asking was really how how did Kennedy, particularly in that campaign, manage to maintain support amongst Black Americans and George Wallace type Democrats? Um, how did both of those things simultaneously? And their answer basically was that he was able to say um, yes. Protest is is appropriate and warranted, and I'm with you until you're breaking the law. It's not okay to destroy things and hurt people. Then you need to be prosecuted. But they really said was he was a um, a liberal without the elitism and a populist without the racism. Mm -hmm. And I, I would not compare myself to him, but but I think that's the target um, to say there's a there is absolutely a role for protest. But if you're if you're hurting people or destroying things, you need to be prosecuted. Um, simple as that, I think. And kind of along these lines, um, I think so. We are three white men um, having a conversation about politics, and I think five years ago that probably would be something where most groups of white men wouldn't acknowledge or wouldn't even notice. Um, but obviously, racial dynamics in our politics are front and center, and I think many would say in a positive way. Um, but I wonder in your position as one of the highest ranking elected officials in Oregon, um, who I'm, I'm sure you've read the articles about how Tobias Reed is on the short list for the next governor. Um, and, you know, we might get an extra congressional seat and blah, blah, blah. How do you think about as a, as a white man, a straight white man, um, who is also on the left, member of the Democratic Party, where, you know, as we've kind of alluded to in this conversation, Issue, whether you call it identity politics or racial justice or representation, it matters more today than maybe ever before, or at least in modern history, in terms of who we elect and, and who folks want representing them. Um, how, how do you think about that? How are you processing that as someone who entered elected office before this was really a focal point of our politics? And now as a person with a major responsibility in a public position who is a white male, um, what, what, what is the internal dialogue that you're having about this question? That's a really insightful question too. I, I think the, the thing for me, I think for everybody is, is to be aware of our own blind spots. Um, you know, each of us have certain advantages and perspectives that, that our experiences allow us to bring to, the, to our work, to the questions we want to uh, confront and, and the issues we want to try to solve. Um, but any, any one person has limitations too. Uh, and, and we've all got to try to be aware of that and supplement them, I think, by um, doing everything we can to, to connect with people who can, who can help us with those blind spots. Um, I've, you know, I want to take advantage of, of the, the perspectives and the lessons that I've been able to, to learn up till now and talk with people who can help me understand things that I don't currently understand. Um, all of us, just as you said, um, have have those limitations, and uh, the rest, I think, to some extent, I don't I don't worry too much about 
what's going to happen down the road. It's a, it's a matter of trying to do the very best that I can right now. Um, I, I really like being treasurer and there's plenty of stuff to, to, um, that can take all of my talents and energies. Uh, and so I got to figure a lot of that stuff out and I got to call on a lot of people to help me, uh, deal with those things. So the rest of it will, will work out. Um, I think the the range of issues and and challenges continues to change, so it'll it'll keep uh, all of our full engagement. So, so uh, Mr. Treasurer, I actually wanted to follow up on something you said earlier about a uh, pragmatic populism. Uh, I promise this will be the last political question too. Then we'll move into a little bit more policy stuff. But you said something really interesting. Uh, I learned what what an ask me anything was on Reddit. <laughs> so I'm now experienced at this, so keep it, keep it coming. Your your treasurer or Godians is on Reddit, so this is this is great. I love that. Uh, but so a, a question about that because uh, and Ben and I were chatting about this earlier, uh, and it was funny because I sort of prodded around to some of my Republican and conservative friends before this. And I said, you know, what's something controversial that I could ask the treasurer? And, uh, right. Honestly, no one really had anything. It was, uh, and sort of from my own research, you know. I can, I, I can bring some up if you need help. Okay, yeah, Ben, we might need some help. But, uh, but, but yeah, sort of from my own research too, it's, you know, uh, sort of, what I'm trying to say is everything I think you push forward, like I, I don't see any moments where, you know, or any sort of public messages from you or your policy platforms. It's like, you know, Alex, I'm coming for your guns and you better try to hold on to them. Or Beto, he's Alex, not I'm Beto. coming for your church or something like that. You're just like, you know, oh, we have these, these savings account and I focus on, you know, access to kinder. It's like, it's very serious sort of policy reforms that I think a lot of people are missing from politics now, because I think that a lot of our politicians are not actually trying to, uh, engage in policy, they're trying to become celebrities, but that's kind of a whole different conversation for another time. But my question <laughs> to that goes back to kind of, as we talked about before, and you actually hinted at this, is that sort of like with the news is that I, I feel like politics now, especially democratic politics in Oregon, it's that uh, whoever wins the primary will likely win, win the governorship. Uh, or the know, senatorship or the, or the state house or, or, right. Yeah, and and I think that, you know, uh, I think if you were in a general election versus probably any Republican at this point, unless something either really bad happened to President Biden or there was some big blowout on the national stage, I think you would probably beat any Republican we'd put up in Oregon uh, for, for a number of reasons. But I think it's, uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting. That, rather than a, uh, <laughs> a, a criticism of, of your party, Alex. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I, I think it's, you know, uh, Part of your, your issue potentially or really anyone that's running more as policy minded may be getting through the primary because I could really see someone saying this treasurer guy, you know, he's not progressive enough or he's not calling for these loud issues that some other people are talking about. So and I want to reference that in the sense of that, you know, you've worked in Oregon politics and you've seen the national landscape change for a while, having started this in 2004. What do you think that sort of says about the state of our politics now that some of those innovative policy ideas, like they don't really even seem to matter anymore. It's just more who can sort of be either the furthest to the right or the furthest to the left on some of sort of what I would say are like the more culture war issues. Yeah, I think you're right. It's a it's a worry. It's a concern. I mean, all, all I know is that the elections I've I've run in and won, um, the, the times when I got uncomfortable were when I was tempted to try to do something that wasn't me um, or or to be someone or say something that, that wasn't authentic. And so 
the, my best route to success, I think, is to focus on the, on the stuff that really represents who I am and what I think is important. I, I think in some ways, and I don't want this to sound sort of uh, too self-pitying, I think what makes me a better um, legislator or treasurer is somewhat at odds with what makes someone, at least by the current definition, the most effective or maybe um, flashiest uh, kind of candidate. Um, I mean, who who wants to talk about standard deviations and and uh, <laughs> asset allocation studies um, and the power of compound interest? Um, but that's who I am, um, and it's a it's a good fit for treasurer, and you know maybe it'll be good fit for for something else down the road. I, I don't get to run for treasurer again, um, so I, I hope I can figure out a way to be uh, to continue to be of service over time. Um, but it, it is that celebrity stuff, um, and I think. You know, one other kind of fun thing um, that, that COVID has brought amidst all the other challenges, um, we figured out how to have a little uh, neighborhood pod in our in our neighborhood uh, with uh, three sixth grade girls, two second grade boys, and a second grade girl. <laughs> so each each parent uh, pair has has taken an afternoon a week, which means you know I have one Friday afternoon, and then my wife has the next Friday afternoon, and then we alternate. And for some reason, they asked me to cover personal finance and civics. <laughs> I kind of disappointed that I didn't get to do chemistry. Um, but the the challenge of figuring out how to make um, civics relevant for sixth graders and second graders simultaneously has been fun, and it's created some interesting discussions. and And we have to acknowledge what's going on in the world. I don't want to be, you know, burying our collective heads in the sand, but it's been it's been a useful exercise to sort of confront the, the current thing and at the same time try to place it in larger context. And you know, I'm not going to say we're we're reading Plato or, or anything in with these sixth and second graders, but the, the the idea of of reassuring these kids that that a lot of these issues that we're confronting are not new. They're the same things that people have been struggling with for for thousands of years different specifics, different contexts and so on, but but the role of individual freedom versus collective responsibility. That's not, that's not new, it's probably not going anywhere. Uh, and how do we balance those things? I think the, the challenge is figuring out ways that we can um, make that accessible, accessible for people in their individual lives to not feel like it's removed, which I think has the effect of of leaving space for people who are just yelling at each other. And that doesn't serve anybody. Ben, I know you were going to take the next topic, but I just want to point out before we move, uh, Mr. Treasurer, I know many people in the conservative establishment in DC who would be heaping bounds and praises on you if you were helping sixth graders study played out. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know that's, that is a big issue in some of those circles, but, uh, but no, thanks for that. Thanks don't, for that answer, don't, don't tell anyone in the, in the, uh, on the, on the left side of the, uh, of our party right now, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that, 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 secret. that's actually a good, that answer is a good transition to what we want to talk about next, which is like, I think the overlap of COVID and politics, um, COVID policy and politics, I guess is a better way to put it. So um, you wrote a spicy op-ed op in the Oregonian. Um, it raised a lot, raised a lot of eyebrows um, because it was it's sort of like in a in a deep blue state where Democrats control everything, um, legislature, executive branch, judicial branch. Basically, it's rare that uh, a sitting Democrat or statewide Democrat, especially, um, has like an honest critique of the management of a situation. And so, 
the I, I listeners should read it. I think it's a really well-written op-ed. Um, a couple of the, the spicier quotes are, we need to stop reacting and start leading. And our pandemic battered economy needs our leaders to present a clear vision for our recovery and a map of how to get there. And this was, and, and it also did praise um, some of the acts that had been, take, been taken by the governor and the legislature, but it was really saying, we don't have a strategic economic plan to recover from this. Um, and our schools being closed prevents um, our larger economy from being able to function fully for the dynamics of the state treasurer teaching sixth grade, you know, second grader civics on a Friday. Um, so why did you write the op-ed? Um, and part one, and then part two is, what's your what's your evaluation of, that was about a month or two ago. Is there a strategic plan? Like, are you confident in the direction Oregon is moving now or do we still have a significant challenge on our hands? It was really interesting to listen to you ask that question because I wasn't sure where you're going to take it at the end. <laughs> I was about to say, uh, sorry, Ben, that that's still the relevant op-ed. I, I would still write it today. Um, yeah. So that's the answer to the second part. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, things have happened since then, um, but I don't think we're necessarily uh, in, in a lot better place. Um, I, you know, I'd almost be able to say, just, you know, read it again. Um, there, there are lots of things going on and lots of challenges to where we are right now. But to my mind, two things have to go at the front um, before all the other things. And that is safe reopening of schools and helping small businesses get through the pandemic. And it's, it's in that op-ed, but I'll say what I mean here. These things are really connected. The, the economic experience has fallen particularly on women. Um, that's kind of obvious. Um, before the, the recent welcome and needed uptick, we were at a, something like a 35 year low in the rate of uh, labor participation by women. Wow. Uh, a big part of that is because women are the folks who are one, uh, generally paid less for, for similar work and generally take on the burdens um, of, of managing remote learning. And if schools aren't open, people can't work. That impacts the small businesses. They can't have, have their staff in place. How are they gonna get through? Um, and no, but if we can't agree on anything else, let's all agree we do not want to repeat the academic experience of this last year. You know this directly, Ben, as a, as, a, yeah. as a school board member. It's not good. Not good. And I, you know, I've, I am aware, to, to reference some of our earlier conversation, of some really significant advantages I have. And it's not good at our house. We're, my wife and I are lucky enough to have jobs that we can do at home. Uh, and it's, it's not great. I can't you know, devote the full attention to work that I want to. I know our kids are not getting the experience they want. And then imagine the people who don't have that advantage, who have to choose. Are they gonna work? Are they gonna help their kids with remote learning? This is not a good situation. So I think you know, I, a few weeks ago, I got to go down and visit the Roseburg School District, um, which is a really interesting uh, sort of case study because they are, they're maybe the smallest of the quote unquote big districts. Right. Um, so they're kind of a, a the Goldilocks district for, for the purposes of my exploration. Uh, so we went down there, we spent probably three hours sitting with their superintendent, a bunch of their staff. We're in a very big room. We all had masks on the whole time. So it felt fine with that. Um, and I came home both encouraged and, and, and nervous. Um, encouraged because this district had figured out, and this was a few weeks ago now, 
they were a couple months into basically fully reopened with, with some creativity around high schools and block days and that sort of stuff, but they'd figured it out. So that was encouraging. Okay. The less encouraging part was it took them a couple of months of, of really uh, deliberate effort and some missteps and some iteration and back and forth. And I don't, I don't see a lot of evidence, perhaps you can correct me, that, that there are a lot of other districts that are, that are engaged that deliberately and creatively and with that much um, community involvement. Hmm. And I totally subscribe to what they, the, their message as, as, as we heard it, which was, was a call, almost a desperate call, and I'm putting too, many, too much um, commentary on it, but a call for state direction now for the fall. Um, I think without that and without a start of that iteration and that figuring it out, we're not guaranteed a smooth uh, opening to the fall. I, I would, you know, as I said in that, in that op-ed, I think we should be using this time uh, to figure that out. Maybe we shouldn't just assume that we should treat a summer break this year like every other summer break. We got stuff to figure out. Um, and at the same time, and I'm going back and forth like like any good two-handed economist here, um, there there is reason to think we can do it. You know, the, the pace of vaccinations is picking up. That shouldn't be the same kind of issue for educators and staff. Um, there's money coming from the federal government. We should be able to deal with some of the things around equipment and spacing and, and PPE and HVAC systems and all that sort of stuff. But we should be working on that right now. We should be laser focused, in my mind, on these two central things, getting schools open safely in the fall and making sure that small businesses are going to make it through the pandemic. Larger businesses um, like my former employer, Nike, some challenges, but they'll figure it out. Um, so if we get the if we make progress on these things, the other things get easier. If we don't, everything else gets harder. And I don't. I'm just not willing to, to be quiet about that. I want to I want to recognize when when we're doing smart things um, and and credit people for doing that. But I, I want us, as I said in that one, to to stop reacting and and have a consistent and real focus on these things that are going to unlock the, the the path back to the kind of economy that lets everybody live up to their potential. I would so, assume. And I didn't even actually have a question. I got well, a question and an interesting insight into the op-ed uh, because one, I thought it was interesting that you actually made the issue local in some sense. Uh, I think you very easily could have written, this is a disaster. It's all Donald Trump's fault. His administration was incompetent. This is why we're, we're in this scenario. But you actually said, no, I mean, well, you, you may still believe that, but the op-ed focused on- Partially that. true, partially true. The op-ed focused <laughs> on- Exclusive, you see. <laughs> focused on let's, let's have a path forward. Democrats need to present a, you know, a plan basically to, to move this forward. So I'm curious if we had uh, you know, Governor, Governor Reed, for example, and let's even say you had control of the legislature, we dramatically expanded your emergency powers. <laughs> what, what would sort of the plan look like, uh, and this is probably multiple questions in one, both from the economic side of things, so to help women, help small businesses, help workers who are suffering, then also from let's put a plan in place to help reopen our school. What's kind of the general framework of, if you were, if you were a leader of how you kind of move these things forward, as you said, to being proactive instead of reactive? 
Well, let, let's start right now because it's easy to criticize you know, uh, past actions with, with perfect hindsight. Um, I, I think it, has, it starts with all the other stuff. This is what we're doing. Um, you know, I would, I would like to see a real focus on, on these areas inside every aspect of the policymaking process. I'd like to see a clear and coherent plan for how to use the, um, the dollars that are coming from, from the federal government. Let's not uh, piecemeal them out to whatever maybe meritorious ideas on, on, you know, on an individual basis. This is an opportunity to make really lasting change in a, in a, at, at scale, uh, something that could, you know, could, could address longstanding problems or problems that we can see way down the path um, we don't yet have an idea about how to deal with. Um, I think recognizing that those are their one-time one -time dollars um, and, and continuing that specific focus on helping small businesses get, get through this, getting schools uh, reopened safely. Um, all of those have, have elements beneath them, um, whether it's, it's the physical um, settings of schools. Um, I think you have to have the, the humility to recognize that it wasn't that long ago that the CDC said, actually it turns out three feet is probably sufficient for schools. So that, that can make things easier. But there's still probably gonna be different uh, challenges in, in different school buildings and school districts. Let's get serious about that inventory right now so that we can have a plan. If we are going to have a summer that looks like other summers, let's use that time to address that infrastructure so that it's ready in the fall. Um, let's, let's look at those, um, those small businesses. Let's, let's figure out how we can use the, the power of, of state purchasing, um, it, particularly in the short run. Maybe, maybe we look at um, our, uh, our traditional um, procurement methods a little differently and say, in this case, we should we should give ourselves a little more room if we can uh, keep that uh, multiplier effect in our in our local economy. Um, maybe the absolute lowest price is, is not the only consideration as we recover. All of those things have to be part of the conversation. And again, keeping schools and businesses at the center of it, I think is what opens up other possibilities. I think that that's really well said. And I will, I mean, as a school board member, this has been incredibly challenging for me personally to try to, I think the hardest thing for people in the schools were, world has been the rap, and I think this is true for everyone, but I think it's particularly true for schools because we're constantly looking at the federal government and the state government to say, here are the rules you're operating under. Um, here's what you can and can't do. Here's what you have to do. Yeah. Here's where you have an option. And that every week there's a new shift and sometimes dramatic, dramatic shifts. And you've got these sort of like, variable dynamics like case rates etc which like one, one thing i've been thinking about re recently is like so in our district we've had i think over half of our elementary schools now have had at least one um one cohort of students where one student in the cohort has tested positive um and so but uh meanwhile vac vaccination rate i think half of the state half half of the state's adults are now vaccinated so the death rate is substantially lower than it's been but we right. haven't controlled for that in our formulas totally that's i mean i was pleased to see that oha the governor added hospitalizations as as a factor as well we have to get used to the idea that this is going to look a lot more like uh, in fact where was i reading this recently um can't remember whose column it was but they said um, someone, uh, a law student uh, or a law, a law professor uh, created this fable and they said, imagine if I gave you a, uh, this, this wonderful um, 
invention that allowed you to, to travel really easily and see people and, and described all these other benefits that I'm not recalling right now, but the cost is a thousand people are gonna die. Would you take it or would you not? And all these smart law students say, no, 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 wouldn't take it. And then the law professor says, well, what's the difference between that and the car? Um, <laughs> yeah. Essentially it. Yeah, we've accepted that and maybe that's okay, but we're not gonna get anywhere if we're gonna say zero risk. Um, we have to get to the point, I think, where we're comfortable with, and, and we've got to determine it, what's what's the acceptable level of risk. Uh, so I'm actually really, have you gotten pushback from that? Because uh, I totally agree. And I actually think that that's, uh, I mean, that's definitely where I am. I think a lot of people on the right are there that, you know, let's keep the vaccinations rolling. There will always be a risk with this, uh, you know, just as people, of course, die from the flu every year. I mean, this might just be something which it's unfortunate, but it, May, COVID may just live with us forever here on out. And we can keep updating the vaccines, but of course, people are still going to be at risk. Uh, now, I don't think actually that that's a lot of the same rhetoric that many politicians have used. And I'll say Democrats and Republicans. I think people, it, it's been a lot more scare tactic in the sense of, uh, I think this Johnson & Johnson case, uh, again, they're still exploring this more, but supposedly six people have gotten blood clots and there's been 6 million vaccines. I'm one of I, them. I will gladly, I mean, I think it's probably a higher chance that you'll die in a plane crash than one in a million. So it's like, is no one going to get on planes anymore? Half, it's half the likelihood of getting struck by lightning. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, uh, tomorrow is two weeks for me uh, from, from Johnson Johnson. Um, it, it's absolutely don't leave, the, don't leave the house, Tobias. It's too dangerous. You need to be careful. <laughs> Wear my mask. You're right, Alex. But but I also, on the other end, I'm not of the, the sort that says no masks. You know, I'm I'm 13 days out. I'm still wearing the mask. Um, if for no other reason than to express solidarity with the people yes. who don't yet have the vaccines. It's pretty it's pretty easy. It's it's a little uncomfortable and inconvenient, but but you gotta do it. And you got to do smart things. Um, they're not. It's not uh, a binary choice where you, you know, going, uh, not uh, refusing to leave the house or running around and doing all irresponsible things. Um, that's it, it's it's so consistent with the rest of our conversation around uh, our the the need to cultivate tolerance for incrementalism and nuance. Well said. Um, so. I got to ask you a bigger question. We're almost out of time. Um, and, and I know uh, uh, Mr. Titus is going to have a flood of dogs running through his uh, his door soon. That's going to destroy our audio. So we got to get to this question and then maybe um, Alex, you can ask the final question. So whenever we have Republicans on the podcast or someone like uh, Jamie McLeod Skinner, we ask about the urban rural divide. Um, but we don't ask suburban and urban Democrats about the urban rural divide very often. It's really something that we kind of, and I think it's because sort of in using the frame of um, Jamie McLeod Skinner, like the I-5 corridor is who's in charge. Um, you know, Port Portland, Washington County, Clackamas County, um, Salem. And she did actually explicitly say that too. That wasn't even just the frame. She explicitly said they are the ones in charge. Rural Democrats don't have power. And, and not just and not just like in government. She was speaking more broadly about like political institutions and interest groups and like all of these. So, but but I think that we all kind of recognize that this urban rural divide question. We've got the Greater Idaho campaign, which I you know maybe you have a unique perspective as a former Idahoan about that. 
do have a funny, a funny comment on that that I'll, I'll, I'll share from someone else in a moment. But, but I think really the question is like, you, you actually do have a, a unique responsibility here, I would say, as a statewide elected official. Um, unlike most folks who speak on the urban rural divide, they don't actually represent folks outside of their constituency. Um, you do. So what's the solution? Uh, or solutions, or or is this something where you know our, our polarization is so severe at this point that we need to just accept accept that this reality is where we're at? It's where we start, but it's certainly not where we should finish. Everyone, as we've talked about in several other contexts over this course of this conversation, it comes from a place, and we all um, have some thoughts about that. Many of us are lucky to feel good about it. Some people want to move, and that's fine. Um, but we're all, we're all connected in Oregon, and that's not just a, an easy statement. It's literally true because of our tax structure. Um, a success, an economic success in one part of the state accrues to the benefit of the rest of the state because people pay income tax, which is then redistributed throughout the state. Uh, the scale is interesting. So, you know, it's easy for someone in Portland to dismiss uh, in, in, a, you know, in an insulting way some, some small economic success in another part of the state. But, you know, if you factor for scale, that it would be a really huge deal um, in, in, in Portland. So I think that's the place to start and to recognize that um, we all want largely the same things. We want our, our families to be healthy and safe and happy and nearby. Uh, that That's true no matter where you live. Um, and I think that's on a practical stand, from a practical standpoint, we need some more um, it's more exchange programs. Um, formal I totally rent. agree. Um, you've probably seen that. There was a great uh, piece on uh, Oregon Field Guide several years ago um, where it's just such a great concept. Um, some some students, I don't remember what age they were, probably middle school or maybe high school, who were um, uh, who went off to Eastern Oregon and participated in a, in a um, sheep shearing operation um and you know they'd get up early and they had to go out and milk the cows or i don't remember all the details but that was totally different and then some of those uh some of those same kids in eastern oregon came to urban portland and but what but what about what about when when i think what i'm struggling with is like the different realities piece of this which is like in one reality um, in one in one version of which isn't reality, but in their understanding of reality, Donald Trump literally was like saving America from a ring of child predators who had entrenched themselves in government. And that is that is what they believe. And on yeah. the other hand, Donald Trump is a literal criminal who somehow has escaped a prison sentence dis despite being awful. Like was put in office by Vladimir Putin. The in the in the in the in the the economic argument which i agree with and i think it's just not compelling to people it's like like cultural issues seem to be trumping economic best interest in ways that are you know old like you know yeah, what's, yeah. anyway i don't i don't think you're wrong to acknowledge the, the 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 space of that gap but we can take on what we can take on and i don't i don't want to start with the giant thing i want to i want to accumulate a win and and i'd like to yeah, my experience has been it's a lot harder to demonize someone you've you've eaten a meal with or you spent some time with. And I'm not I don't think I could solve that what you just articulated in a in a meal, but we can put people together, we can we can get a lot closer. And I'll tell you a story about why this is true right now. And and here's a place, Alex, a, a controversy, a real controversy that, that <laughs> uh, uh oh, we're about to break news. Uh, <laughs> it's old news. It's really old news. Um, but it's the nice story too. So 
when I became treasurer, I stepped right into this conversation around the Elliott State Forest. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is, you know, a problem that has gone on for, for decades. And I just said, you know, I'm a fiduciary of the Common School Fund. I'm not ready to, to, um, to say no to a, a, a proposal that the previous land board had already uh, approved without an alternative in place. Um, and that, that I could show you some emails, uh, my, my all time email uh, from all my years of public services was right then. I said, no, we want to, we want to create a different path. Um, and it's, you know, really not wanting to kick the can further down the road. And fast forward a few years, because there's some, some dicey situations some places where it almost went off the road. And there you see uh, Paul Beck from the Douglas Timber Operators. You know this, Alex, Douglas Timber Operators. These are not, I don't think they, I don't think anyone would describe them as progressive in the, in the current parlance, sitting next to Bob Salinger, Portland Audubon Society. And I don't remember which of them said it about the other, but they said, this is to the land board, public hearing, like, when we started this, I didn't like him. <laughs> I still don't agree with very much of what he says, but we've created something here and we want to keep working. And, and then um, Keith Timchuk, the mayor, the former mayor of Reed's board, um, put it really beautifully about how this proposal that doesn't even matter for the point I'm making here is emblematic of what can happen when you do sit down urban and rural super right wing and he's, that's unfair to, to Paul Beck but but super oriented around um, timber and and that orientation um, versus Bob Salinger and the, and the Audubon Society they still don't agree on everything but they said this you know they said this is not something that any one of us would have designed if we got to do it ourselves but this can work and more important than that specific solution is as a demonstration of of what other things are possible so again, wandered pretty far from your original question, but getting people together is is the answer to all of that, I think. Just totally yeah. locked into the uh, practical policy. Like it, it, I think people will be, they will, it's very clear where you're coming at um, political challenges as a, as a leader. You're not like, you know, many opportunities to take the, uh, take the red meat answer and appeal to the base, but that's just like, as you said, it's not, not who you are. So it will be interesting to see how that fares. Um, Alex. And, that, and that dives into my final question. Uh, so, Mr. Fetcher, we love to break news on this podcast <laughs> for our, you know, billions of viewers around the world who tune in weekly to listen to the uh, sometimes semi-intelligent things that Ben and I have to say. But uh, so a number of media publications, frankly, probably all of them, the ones in Oregon, have identified you as a potential candidate and a top tier candidate to run for governor uh, this next time around. So I know that you're probably not planning on making any news by announcing anything today, Come but on, what guys. would it take you, what, what do you think it would take to go from, hey, I'm exploring this idea and I'm thinking about it to, okay, it's time to throw my hat in the ring. There's no question I'm moving forward with this. I, I appreciate uh, that's a, a different way of asking the question than I sometimes get asked. Um, <laughs> I, I wanna make sure that I'm doing everything I can to, to move the state forward. And if I end up, uh, being nothing more than treasurer, that's great. It's a, it's a terrific job. And I think we've, we've done some important things and have some more things to do. Um, I, I wanna see how, how the conversation 
continues to evolve. Um, what the what the circumstance looks like, you know, if I, if I feel like uh, I've got something to offer and there's a path for me, um, that's that's certainly a possibility. But um, we're a long way from that. It's still we're still in the thick of this of making sure that um, we're doing everything we can for Oregon to uh, to be on a path to recovery. Uh, I'm going to keep talking about the schools and small businesses as the key to that recovery, uh, and and we'll see how how things evolve. But but I promise if you if you'll have me back, uh, I'll come back and, and talk more with with both of you because I've certainly enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. Well, Treasure Reed, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Please, everyone, remember to like and give us a five star rating wherever you get your podcast. Thank you to our producer, Buddy Terry. And uh, finally, Treasure Reed, if people want to follow you or learn more about what you're doing at Treasury, what's the best way for them to be in touch with you? Run all the uh, the social media outlets on an official basis and a, and a political basis. So at Tobias Reed is uh, is the is the unofficial and the easiest to remember. Uh, at Treasurer Reed is the is the official side on Twitter. Perfect. Do, do you have TikTok also? <laughs> Uh, I don't think we've done any TikTok. You're on, you are on Clubhouse though. Yeah, I think you are the first Oregon elected official that I've seen on on Clubhouse. So you are a, a, a trailblazer in that sense. Ahead of the times. We're, we're <laughs> trying. We're trying. All right. Thanks for being here, Treasure Reed, and thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank yeah, you. Thanks so much.